What an incredible story, right? <laughs> Esther chapter 5, a, a bit of a climax to the story. The, the plot is getting thicker and thicker, and, and the activity of rescue is, is coming in in the work of Esther and her boldness as she has found an identity in what God has made her as one of those who are chosen by God among the Jews. I invite you to turn to chapter 5 as we walk our way through this passage together. Esther chapter 5. We're going to look together first at verses 1 through 5. Before we even look at those, we're going to take a moment to retell the story, catch us all up at what is happening here in Esther. Esther is a Jew, and she has become queen in the mighty kingdom of Persia. Now, not like you might think of queens, you know, sitting there next to the king, together offering edicts. She's a queen, but she has almost no power or authority. King Ahasuerus has all the power. It's even dangerous for Esther, the queen... It's even dangerous for her to come into the presence of the king without his specific invitation. That's where we find Esther this morning. We find her entering the presence of King Ahasuerus uninvited. So here's the backstory. One of the powerful men in the court of King Ahasuerus, his name was Haman. He hates a man named Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jew, one of the chosen people of God, and unbeknownst to Haman, Mordecai is also related to Queen Esther. Do you get that? He hates Mordecai, but doesn't know that Mordecai is related to the queen. And since Esther's parents have died, Mordecai is more than just related. He's actually Esther's guardian. Since Haman hates Mordecai, he's asked the king's permission to kill all of the Jews. You see, Haman's pride and covetousness is so great, it's not enough just to have Mordecai gone. He wants to eliminate all the Jews in the whole of the kingdom. And the kingdom is so large, what that means is it would eliminate all of God's people. You see, we have a promise. We have a problem regarding the promise of God. This is why Esther is coming to King Ahasuerus. She's looking for a way to convince Ahasuerus to save herself, yes, to save Mordecai, yes, and to save all the Jews from certain destruction. Now, let's remember what happened in the end of our chapter this morning. After three days of prayer and lament, at the end of chapter 4, Esther puts on the royal robes and enters the inner court of King Ahasuerus. If the king doesn't lift up his golden scepter, what looks like a a long golden pole that's a symbol of his authority and power, which is the symbol of the authority and power of the whole of the kingdom. If the king doesn't lift up that scepter to Queen Esther, when she enters uninvited, she can be killed. And that's what she's walking into. You can, you can feel the drama and the tension in this chapter. But King Ahasuerus does more than just raise the golden scepter. He offers Esther anything she wants. Esther knows that the king can't just reverse his prior decree for the elimination and destruction of all the Jews. No edict of the king can be reversed. And so... She simply asks the king for something quite clever, really. 
she asks the king and Haman to join her for a private dinner party. Now, I want to pause here to notice something about the first few verses of our reading this morning. I want you to notice something about approaching the throne. Earlier in our service this morning, we remembered that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. In today's chapter, we see a man who is completely robbed of joy. And I could not help but ask myself, what's his problem? Why is he robbed of joy? Why does he find himself in such a desperate state of dissatisfaction? It must be that he is seeking to glorify himself. You see it show up in the passage very quickly. Before we consider Haman's pride, and we will in just a moment, before we consider his covetousness, let us consider how access to the throne of God is access to our great hope and our every joy. Remember Psalm 73, verse 25. We said it together. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. The Lord God is our only hope. He is our joy. He is the great and glorious one. There is no glory that we could seek that is higher. Now, when we read any literature, when we watch any movie, when we hear a good song, we ought often find ourselves in our minds thinking about the Lord, who He is, and what He's done. This is our chief end, after all, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It seems like forever we include at all times, including the times in which you find yourself reading a good book, watching a good movie, listening to a good song. And how can you glorify the Lord there but to hear the echoes of the Lord and His work in the midst of the story? Do you hear the echoes of the Lord in this story? Consider what we have. We have a person, helpless, dependent, without any right of approach. That's Queen Esther, right? And she's coming before the great king of kings, King Ahasuerus. Do you see the king granting entrance to his courts out of grace and kindness? Do you see the king granting not only access, but possession of the kingdom? It's interesting. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now, we should stop very far short of saying that King Ahasuerus is a type for Christ. King Ahasuerus is an evil man who is bent on world domination and setting himself up as the true king of kings and lord of lords. He is an idolater and an enemy of the Lord God. But when we look at him, we consider one who is far greater. Martin Luther and others have seen in the golden scepter a a sort of image of Jesus on the cross. You see, Jesus is the golden scepter that was lifted up by which we gain access to God. Jesus is the mediating grace by which those who are far off and uninvited are brought near and made free access to the king and his kingdom. Friends, this isn't the point of Esther. 
point of Esther is not to give us a bunch of little metaphors about Jesus. It has a profound story that stands on its own. But how beautiful when you see someone approach a king and be received by him with grace that we can so quickly remember the grace by which we have been received. We've been received into the king's courts, not because we have a right to be there, but because of his grace and mercy. It's no wonder that when we approach the throne of grace, we approach with thanksgiving in our hearts and we enter his courts with praise. Right, church? Let's consider. Now let's continue in the story and look at Haman. Now there's a reason why we're looking at Haman at his pride and covetousness. When we read the Bible, we often identify ourselves with the hero of the story, right? We ask ourselves, how could I be more like Queen Esther? But as we learned along the last few weeks, Esther isn't the hero of the story at all. In fact, Esther isn't the the hero. The, The hero isn't even named in the story. It's the Lord who is behind every page and behind every line, working His sovereign rule over kings and people according to His covenant promises. But even if Esther was the hero of the story, I think that today's chapter evidences something for us. That we would be fooling ourselves if we thought that we were more like Esther than any of the other people in the story. You see, when I read it, more often than not, I know that myself... I'm more like Haman in this chapter than I am like anyone else in this story. Consider verses 9 through 14. We're going to spend the majority of the remainder of our time there. After Queen Esther invites Haman to join her and the king, uh, join her and the king to a, a private party, Haman leaves the palace. And if you look at verse 9 with me, go and look down at your Bibles here. It says, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. He leaves this great invitation, filled with joy. He's probably bouncing his way, high-fiving the, the other high people in the place, saying, look, I got invited to a sweet party. I mean, of course I did. You guys know I would be, right? And then as he's leaving the palace, he sees Mordecai as he's bouncing and dancing his way in joy and gladness of heart. The verse here, verse 9, the second half, it says, But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. Oh, the guy who's gotten invited to a big party. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. His, His pride is so abused when Mordecai won't bow down and show him respect. His his joy disappears and he's filled with wrath. And so Haman decides to comfort himself by showing off a little. You see, Haman's joy is wrapped up in his pride. Joy is always wrapped up in something, in something that we consider to be glorious. Haman happens to find himself to be glorious. And he's puffed up with pride. And when something seems to suggest that he is not glorious, his joy is robbed. And so, he does what anyone in his situation would do. He throws a party for himself. He gets himself a little ice cream, a little treat, gathers some buddies together who will affirm him and tell him how great he is. 
He throws a party to show off all that he has and to puff himself up with pride in the way that Mordecai had deflated him. It's at this party of pride that Haman's wife suggests that Haman fix the whole situation once and for all by just killing Mordecai. And not just kill Mordecai, she suggests he build a gallows that's 50 cubits or 75 feet high. All right, I'm not even sure if you could see Mordecai anymore. He wants him erased and erased in such a massive public display of his own pride. It's like she's saying, here's what happens to people who get in the way of Haman's pride. The tension's high. It's a great story. Just when Esther looks like she's gained the upper hand, right? Haman accelerates things, so it looks like Mordecai is going to be killed even before her plan goes into motion. Haman's the most fully fleshed out character in the whole of the story. In in the whole of the story, we've been struggling for what's motivating Ahasuerus to do this, right? The whole of the story, why does Esther act like this here and then act like this here? And we're making all these motivational guesses, but we're told about Haman. We're told exactly what motivates him. We're told that it's pride and covetousness at the center of his desire. So this morning, I want to consider four implications of Haman's pride. Be clear, four implications. The first implication is Haman's emotional state is directly tied to his pride. Verse 9, Haman went out that day, and he was joyful and glad in heart. That's directly related to the circumstances that are actually far outside of Haman's control. Do you notice that? What happened to Haman that made him so filled with joy and so proud is something that he didn't do. It's something that happened to him that was outside of his control. He feels powerful, but that's just the lie of pride. He feels powerful because he'd been invited to a party, but in reality, everything in the story is happening to Haman. And he just keeps reacting in the way that pride reacts. See, how often can we feel like we're in control just because circumstances are going our way for a few moments? We're puffed up with pride, and we experience the joy that comes in glorying in ourselves and in our circumstances. And then in the second half of verse 9, Haman saw Mordecai and was filled with wrath. The circumstances happen to him again, and it affects pride and creates wrath and despair and fear. Mordecai is a reminder to Haman's pride that he is not in control. And I'll tell you, that is one of the greatest fears of a person who is walking in pride, is that they're not in control. The world doesn't revolve around Haman. The bloated bubble of Haman's ego is popped and it's replaced with wrath and fear. What's the implication? Haman's pride is directly tying into his emotional life. When our motivation is pride, we're easily blown and tossed by the winds of circumstances, are we not? Because our pride tells our heart a story that isn't true. It tells us that, that we're in control, that we're the stuff, that, that, that we belong where we are and the circumstances are the way we are, they are because of who we are. But that is a lie. 
The Lord alone is sovereign. The Lord alone is glorious. The Lord alone is worthy of the center of our lives, and the bubble of our pride will pop. Second implication of Haman's pride is this. Haman's pride reflects the pride of his king. It makes sense that Haman would be like this for where he is and where he finds his hope. In verse 11, it says that Haman throws this big party and he's recounting the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions. He throws a party to show off his riches, sons, and promotions. You see, the chief end of pride is to puff itself up. The chief end of pride is to glory in itself, and if it builds something big enough, to try to seek joy in it. But since we are not glorious and we are not great, in reality, our egos, not as great as our egos make ourselves out to be, pride must create an artificial set of opportunities outside of ourselves to puff ourselves up. At Cross Point, we often call it pretending and performing. And that's what Haman is doing here. He's creating a series of pretending and performing for those around him so that he would be puffed up. But in reality, it's all hot air. No riches, no sons, no promotions can rescue Haman from the sovereign king of the universe and his purpose is to rescue his people. Haman's pride is going down. You see, there's no one in the story who knows for sure what will happen with their life, but the Lord knows for sure that He will rescue His people. He will do it, and He does it. Now, here's one of the things that I found fascinating and a bit terrifying. When, when Haman goes off and decides to throw the party and to par- parade his idols around, what does he choose? It says that he chooses the splendor of his riches the number of his sons, and all of his promotions. How similar is that to the idols of our lives? Wealth, family, career. That just sounds like me. That just sounds like my life. That just sounds like the little parties I throw for myself. That sounds like the pretending and performing of our lives Together, we accumulate these and then we begin to find our identity in these to to give these a, a place of glory in our lives so that we might find our meaning and purpose in them. But they are never actually in our control. Our wealth, our family, and our career are outside of our control. We did not create them. We do not deserve them. We cannot sustain them. We have no promise of them. But there are things that we know for sure. Not that we are in control of, but we know the one who is. There are things that we know are promised. Will we search through the Scriptures to find these? Even in the struggle of our hearts, some of our parenting this morning is evidence of a misplaced sense of identity and control. Now, how easily when the when you, we have our children just right, right next to us, and I tell you, there's probably almost no place that is more difficult for a parent than church because you're so busy pretending and performing because your identity is found there and in their behavior and, and in whether or not they're a good disciple reflects on whether or not you're a good disciple maker when in reality, their soul is not under your control. None of it. None of our wealth. 
none of our family, none of our careers. If these are at the center of our little kingdoms, they become traps. They ensnare us as the circumstances and relationships in our lives change. Which is interesting because Haman's pride has caught him in Queen Esther's snare. If Haman did not have such great pride, he would not have been caught by Queen Esther. His pride can't even let him see the circumstances clearly. He thinks that he's been invited there because he's great. He's actually being invited there because he is going to be brought to destruction. Implications are massive here. Probably there are more implications that you need to just reflect on there on your sermon card and in community group. But just like King Ahasuerus, Haman finds his joy by puffing himself up in a great show of pride and arrogance. Just like King Ahasuerus in chapter 1. But you and I don't have King Ahasuerus. We have a different king. And when we look at him, we see one who humbled himself in obedience to the Father, even to death on a cross. And we have a completely different pattern in which we see his glory and we find our joy. What if? What if our joy is not found in pride and boasting? What if our joy is found in obedience, in sacrifice, and in worship of the one who is greater? What if? Consider the third implication, pride. Pride completely robs Haman of any joy. In verse 13, after he's prated all of what is great about himself, yet all this, he says, is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. C.S. Lewis has some wonderful work on pride, and he says this, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something. We saw it right there, right? Pride has no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. But friends, that would not be a cure. That would be despair for the prideful soul. The proud person would lose his sense of worth and be robbed of joy, just like Haman here. You know, I have this image uh, in in, in my household of, I think really all four of my children did this. Something tells me I probably did this when I was a kid. You've seen it before. My kid is chewing a chocolate chip cookie. Can you chew anything better than that other than beef jerky? Chewing a chocolate, the the beautiful chocolate chips, that sugary sweetness in his mouth, and he's drooling, but not out of joy. He's drooling because he's crying. He's throwing an absolute tantrum, and that beautiful sweetness is dripping down the chin. Like, this is nasty. You know why? Because he was given one cookie and not given access to a second. And it robs him all of his joy, even in the midst of the one incredible cookie that I'm like, I wish I could have eaten it because I would have enjoyed one, right? Pride, covetousness, joy in comparison will always rob us of joy. Leave us there drooling in displeasure in a good gift. And, And to be honest, everyone else in the room can see that we're fools. 
Pride and covetousness are peculiar sins. Others can see our sin, but we're completely unable to see it ourselves. Tim Keller helpfully points out it's, it's not like stealing or lying or murder. You don't wake up one day and with, and with shock realize that, oh my goodness, I took $20 from my mom's purse and went out and bought a box of candy bars. I had no idea. No, you don't wake up one day with shock and realize, oh my goodness, I cheated on my exam. But pride and covetousness are much more crafty sins. We, we bury them deep in our hearts. We're, we become so accustomed to living with covetousness and greed that we don't even realize that our souls are misshapen. We have no idea why we aren't happy. We don't know why we're not satisfied, that nothing will actually do in our circumstances because the problem is with our heart. The problem is where we are looking for glory. The implication on this one again is clear. Pride and covetousness rob us of joy because we're too blind to see that the problem isn't with what we don't have or with what others think of us. The problem is what we think of God. All of this is nothing to me, Haman says. I'm reminded of King Solomon's words, I've seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, under the sun all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Let's consider the fourth implication. Haman's pride sets the stage for his own death. I mean, it's incredible. This is incredible story writing. It, it, it leads us to this moment in this recording what has taken place in history to be, oh my goodness, I know what's going to happen on that 75-foot scaffold. In verse 14, he says, let gallows be made. Spoiler alert, all right? If you haven't read ahead, Esther, cover your ears. Mordecai isn't going to be hanging from the gallows. Haman is. Haman's gallows have already been made. The second he thought to find his glory and joy in himself, he was going to hang somewhere. Hopeless in his pride. The passage ends fascinating. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Chapter 5 ends with a happy Haman, building his destruction. Friends, I, I, I look around at where we live. I look around at the culture in which we find ourselves with our masses of entertainment, with our great access to many things. And I see a people who are very pleased. The idea of the way we are fashioning our lives has pleased ourselves, but we do not see we are building an empty glory. We are establishing our own destruction. Implications, again, they're clear. As with all idolatrous desires, pride promises rescue and glory. It's what idols always do. They promise rescue. They promise salvation. They promise glory. Those are God words. They don't belong to pride. They don't belong to idols. But in this case, rescue from obscurity, rescue from powerlessness that Haman felt. But in the end, it always leaves us hanging alone. For Haman, literally. There's only one rescue, there's only one glory, and we cannot rescue ourselves. Our, our, our glory is far too small to truly satisfy 
what God has created to be satisfied in Him. I'm going to close by considering this. The beauty of the Gospel is that you do not have to strive to build your own glory. And if you do not strive to build your own glory, you do not have to strive to seek your own glory. You don't have to maneuver. You don't have to plot your way into the corridors of power and plenty. You don't have to establish wealth. You don't have to find your value in your family or in your children or in your parents or in your occupation or in your education or in your degrees, your career. We're weak. Ultimately, we're powerless sinners and rebels. And the Lord God has lifted up Jesus on the cross to forgive the weak and the powerless that all who place their faith in Him would have access to the King. There is no greater application point for a people filled with pride than faith. To lay down glory in self and take up faith in the scepter that has been extended, that gives us access to the King. You see, glory can't be found in ourselves. We're, we're just creatures. And, and we are the creation of the Glorious One. Worse than that, we're, we're rebels against the Glorious One and have become less than we were even created to be. We're not created to glory in ourselves. And, and so our pursuit of joy in pride and covetousness can never be satisfied. We were created to glory in God. And that's where faith comes in. That's where, that's where we begin to look for God. That's when we consider, who is He? What has He done? What are the nature of His promises? What has He said He will do? And where has He been silent? What does it look like to walk in obedience and sacrifice and faith-filled worship By grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we have gained access not only to eternal glory, but to eternal joy in His presence. Go to that place, wherever it is that you go to sulk, wherever it is that you go to be creative with your pride, wherever those parties are, and consider in that time and space what is great and glorious about our God and how has He rescued me from my own heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that this, the whole of the church would hear a call in Esther chapter 5 to see you as great and glorious. As we see the destruction of the wicked and their, the downfall of their pride, we would see ourselves in our desperate need of you. That you would show us how you are great and awesome. That we would search your scriptures. That we would remember Psalm 73 and go to it this week that we would counsel one another to Christ, and that we would see that you are glorious and in you is our hope, our salvation, and our joy, that we would ask you for the grace of forgiveness that has been extended, and that we, recipients of your redemption, would find our joy in you and you alone. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your great name. Amen. Thank you.